And then as soon as this guy, we won our trial and worked with the government and the government arrested the second person, then everybody came out of the woodwork saying, oh my God, I was defrauded, I was defrauded. This has resulted in a movie, a book, a Netflix documentary, all sort of flowing out of our, our case. Welcome to Candid Insights. I'm your host, Sahel Badruddin, and joining us today is Mois Kaba, a partner at the law firm Houston Hennigan, rated by Chambers as one of the best trial lawyers they've ever seen. Mois, it's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm so happy to be able to join and chat with you. You know, I often joke around with my friends who've watched the hit law show Suits that you're the real-life Harvey Specter. Would you agree with that? <laughs> you know, it's funny um, because everybody tells me I should be watching the show Suits. Um, and I have never seen a single episode. Um, I'm flattered by the comparison, I suppose, because I understand that he is a, a very talented, strategic lawyer. But Suits is one of those shows that I don't even know a lot of lawyers have, have watched. But it's, it's a good way, I suppose, for, for non-lawyers to get a glimpse at, uh, at the legal world. Yeah, but I often feel that when lawyers watch the show Suits, it's so dramatized that they feel... They feel that it doesn't, of course, represent real law. Just like if you were going to watch House, it wouldn't represent, you know, actual doctors. And so, yeah. So maybe, maybe I don't know. I, I definitely think it's worth checking out. But when you go watch it, just keep that in, keep it in your mind when you watch it. I will. I will. I, I suppose it would be very. If somebody just followed around a real lawyer for most of the day, it wouldn't make for very good TV. Um, but uh there is there are always moments of drama and intrigue even in a normal lawyer's day yeah well, i will hope we can talk yeah. about that a little bit dude your records are off the chart so just to list them off uh you recently obtained a defense victory for caltech after a four-year jury trial in la you defeated a hundred million dollar suit against bosch uh health companies favorably settled a case against the Navajo Nation against Wells Fargo arising out of Wells Fargo's deceptive business practices. And then you defeated the SEC's motion for contempt against Elon Musk's to Musk's tweets. But I want to talk about your story. Uh, you graduated at the top of your class at Cornell at the age of 20 and then went to law school at Columbia. When did you know law was what you wanted to pursue? Oh, I probably when I was about four or five, I think. Um, I I remember um, my parents used to say to me that you know kids your age when when they're asked what do they what do you want to be when you grow up, a lot of them say, you know, I want to be a superhero or I want to be a police officer or a fireman or you know a garbage truck guy, and I always used to say, well. I, I want to be a lawyer. I'm not even sure I quite understood what it meant to be a lawyer uh, at, at the time. It just seemed like 
you know, a position of, of influence and prestige in a way that you could maybe do things to change people's conditions. And it was something that even in, in my youth, I was very interested in mostly for personal reasons, wanting to change, the you know, the quality of, of life. But um, I, I knew for a really long time, I think it crystallized probably when I was in high school um, and uh, then was kind of going along trying to figure out, you know, what do I need to study and, and how, what's the quickest way to get through law school and kind of start my career. Mm. Was there anything particular in high school, like debate or something that got you interested in law? Um, not, not debate as much as, um, uh, really more like government, um, student government and, and other related things. I had, what I really wanted to do was be president of the United States. And the way to become president of the United States, you sort of have to do all these other things. You have to be a senator. You have to be a governor. I, this was a time where you could become president without having had a reality show on NBC. But yeah. um, you, you know, there were all these kind of established pathways there. And uh, law was the most obvious one. Um, and so I said, okay, well, if I'm going to be president, you know, I have to go to law school. I have to be a lawyer and then I have to, you know, earn some money, then go into public service and, and whatnot. So it really was more of a, a government angle as opposed to kind of a, you know, a fascination with, with argument, for example. Mm. Mo, is it still not too late? I would love to see you as president. <laughs> well, it's a whole new world. So yeah, it's, I suppose it's, I suppose it isn't, uh, it isn't too late yet. Um, and who, who knows what, who knows what the future holds? I think I, I, I'm very interested in and committed to public service in, in various ways. Um, uh, and, you know, we can talk about uh, one of the more recent things that I did pro bono to kind of continue scratching, scratching that itch. But I do think it's incredibly important, particularly for kids from immigrant communities and people in immigrant communities, particularly for Muslims who have so often been perceived as, um, at least in the last couple of decades, uh, as aggressors and and others to to be giving back uh, to the communities in which they live, whether that's through volunteerism or public service or some other means. No, agreed, agreed. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that just a little bit later down the line. Did you have any doubts when you were studying law, even after graduating? Doubts in, in what in sense? In terms of like, did you did you have doubts in the sense like you always wanted to be a lawyer or? We always have, I think in any profession, you have times of self-doubt and think you think about whether you chose the right profession. Right. Did you have doubts in sense like, hey, I wish I did something else or this is something else I would have wanted to try? Yeah. No, I, I didn't. You know, I knew throughout law school, after law school, um, before law school, I like being a lawyer was just something that I felt was very much aligned with with who I was and what I thought I would be good at. Um, I think the doubts creep in in a couple of different ways. Um, so the first way, which is, I think, a, a, a really shared experience amongst people of color, amongst immigrant communities, 
amongst anyone who's sort of in a marginalized or underrepresented group is you just have doubts because you don't you don't know whether you could be successful in this world because you haven't seen other people successful in this world that look like you or that come from your background. And so that kind of, I think, I think one of the phrases that's used is this sort of imposter syndrome. You, you're constantly doubting yourself. And to this day, you know, I'm a founding partner at a major uh, trial, uh, elite trial law firm. Um, and to this day, I still think to myself, oh my God, like, am I just a fake? Like, am I going to get found out as being some imposter? <laughs> um, uh, and you know, I talked to my friends who I went to law school with other people of color who are wildly successful. And, you know, we, we laugh about it cause we all say the same thing. Um, and it's just because you don't have a lot of people who came before you that can show you. No, you actually can be exactly who you are, look like you, talk like you, act like you, have your background and be successful in this profession. So that was sort of one level of doubt, I think, that people, which is not unique to me, but people generally, uh, similarly situated people generally struggle with. And then the second level of doubt, I think, just sort of comes with, um, you know, you you go to law school and you think, oh my God, I'm going to change the world. And then you graduate and you're like, oh, actually, I'm just kind of working at a law firm, you know, being well compensated, but, you know, defending some company in some lawsuit that probably no one's going to talk about in 20 years, right? Like how many lives am I actually impacting? So when you get into the law, and you see, well, some of my friends went off and, you know, they went directly into government service or some of my friends went and they're working for the ACLU or they're working for Lambda Legal Defense or they're working for the National Organization for Women. And you think, wow, they're like out there on the front lines. And what am I doing? Oh, you know, I'm going to a conference room to negotiate a settlement. Important, yes, uh, but important in a different in a different way um and so i guess that would be the that was the i'm over it now but that was sort of the second category of doubt after law school so that must have impacted how you chose your path because clearly with some of the things you mentioned even the pro bono and other things you've done you clearly wanted to make a social impact with the work you're doing yeah absolutely and it's it's actually one of the reasons why when we started the law firm that we started it, uh, which is called Houston Hennigan, one of the things that we wanted to do was to make sure we created an environment where we can represent clients who otherwise couldn't afford our services. And those clients include, as you talked about at the beginning, the Navajo Nation, which is the largest Native American uh, group in the U.S., um, as well as other I've represented the Council of American Islamic Relations. I've represented an organization called Freedom for Immigrants. Those, that sort of pro bono work is really important. It's actually sort of foundational to the law firm that we established, but it's part of what kind of keeps me feeling like I am able to do the work that I'm doing for important paid corporate clients, but I'm also able to kind of give back using legal skills. To, to organizations that are closer and nearer to me. What I want to ask next is, what advice would you give to those who want to follow similar paths as you did? 
like you said, you get stuck, you, you, you become a lawyer and you get stuck as an associate or whatever in many of these law firms working for these corporations. But they want to, people who want to make the social impact and, but are struggling to kind of find their way. Yeah, I think, um, so I think you have to have real strength of conviction um, it, and it, whether it's in law or, or whatever, whatever else you do, I, you know, I've seen a number of the, the people that you've interviewed previously, including, uh, Dr. Jamal, who I've known for a long time. I knew a long time ago and we worked together in community service. Um, but, and she's, I think another example of this, you, you know, sort of trailblazing in her own ways. And it's just important to, to believe in where you are going, but also to believe in your capacity to get there. Um, and uh, having that in mind uh, and then giving everything you have to give uh, to, to get there is, is the best advice that I, I can give, right? So believe, believe in yourself, believe in where you want to be, um, and then do the work, the real hard work to get there. We don't have you know, we don't have the benefits that maybe some of our peers might have, right? I, di I didn't know anyone that went to law school when I was going to law school. I didn't know anyone that went to an Ivy League university when I was looking at colleges. Nobody in my family had graduated from, uh, I mean, in, you know, my parents hadn't gone to college or much less graduated from college. Uh, so it was a completely different perspective it was a completely different context from which i was coming um and i think that that strength of conviction in yourself but also the willingness to put in the work even if it is like i'm an associate at a law firm and i don't want to be an associate at a law firm forever either because i want to be a partner at a law firm or because i want to go and you know do public interest work whatever it is but in the moment, in the work that you are doing, I think it's really important to do everything you can to be successful and effective at that job, um, as opposed to looking at the next one. Uh, because I think success follows hard work and diligence and perseverance. Mm. No, agreed with you. And so do you think your background, particularly uh, being an Ismaili Muslim, has affected how you pursue some of those things? Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Like I said, I, you know, when I was growing up in Chicago, it was, we were a very tight knit Ismaili community in Chicago. We had, um, we were basically the first generation of, of Ismaili Muslims, mostly from Pakistan that had um, been born and raised in America. Um, and we had a lot of our parents were still very much working class. My dad was a cab driver. Um, you know, my mom answered phones, uh, and, um, a lot of my friends, you know, their parents had just bought their first Dunkin' Donuts or bought their first convenience store or something like that. But they were all really hardworking people who were singularly focused on making life better for their kids, right. And making life better for their community, and that from that grew, I think, a real desire on my own part to make that work meaningful, right? To make those sacrifices, really not even just of my parents or of my aunts and uncles, but like of, of our entire community, um, make their sacrifices meaningful so that the next generation, my generation, 
would actually be able to go back to them and say, look, look at everything you guys gave up. Um, but look at look at where your kids and kind of your the community's kids are now. So I think in that way, that that sort of social aspect, that so that cultural sort of communal aspect was really meaningful. And then of Ismailism. And then I think um the the kind of from birth focus on education and on upward mobility and on giving giving back to your community which are really strong tenets for me at least of of what it means to be an Ismaili um also were very influential as I was sort of going to school and I was like oh my god I, don't, I really don't want to study for this exam right now like I really just want to sit at home and like watch wrestling or something on TV and yet I was like, no, 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 like we, I have to do this because this, you know, this decision is going to affect the next decision. It's going to affect the next one and the next one and the next one. Sort of anxiety inducing for a teenager, but I guess sort of ultimately long term it works out. So, you know, what we sometimes we all struggle with, right, is I think we all want to be accepted. And when you are not accepted or misunderstood, I think you find ways, like you say, to do covering and different things like that. How did you kind of figure, I think at a point you get to a point where, you know, you're here to live your life. You're not here to be understood, right? Was there a right. point where you got to that? Or of course, it was probably an ongoing journey. I think you, you constantly struggle with it. But any any advice or takes there? You know, I will tell you that the best way to be accepted <laughs> is to be successful. Um, and I, I don't mean that even in, a, in an obnoxious way. When you have accomplished what you have set out to accomplish, and I haven't done that yet, but I'm on my way, as you're on your way, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this is on, your, on their way, that creates so much more positive energy and enforcement around you than anything else. I will tell you it, the easiest thing to to like go back and talk to people about um, uh, you know people who maybe tormented me growing up uh, is well what are you doing now right what are we all doing now and people I think tend to allow more um, uh, I, I I can't think of the right word right now but I think. I think people who end up focused on accomplishing what they want to accomplish in life both care less about necessarily being accepted by others, but also get a lot more acceptance. So we can use Donald Trump as an example. Donald Trump is widely accepted by 30 some odd percent of the country, right? Mm -hmm. That right. acceptance is very much, to my mind, a product of his success in winning the election and obviously in some of the things he says. Now, part of it is attributable to other things. But Donald Trump, before he became president, would was not or would not have been accepted by those people, by that 30-some-odd percent of the people who are truly loyal to him. Um, and I think it's a good um, – it's it's a good, not normatively good, not morally good, but it is a good example of of how just sort of 
keeping your head down or keeping your head up and just striving towards achieving what it is that you're looking to achieve in life is going to create acceptance if that is important to you. Um, and if it is not, if, if you are craving acceptance from people that are only begrudgingly providing it to you, that those are probably not the people you want acceptance from. Um, right, exactly. You know, the friends I've had, I, the people that I've had around me are people that have been with me through 25 years of life. You know, there are people that I met in Jamaat Kana or that I met when I was in Chicago and they have mm -hmm. stayed with me through all of this, through, you know, through ups, through downs, through like moving away from home, et cetera. Those are the kinds of people I think you want acceptance from and they're going to give it to you. Um, uh, it, it's not kind of everybody else out there in the world that has decided on their own that, you know, we have something to prove to them. And I think those people are there with you. They were there. They already accepted you, you for who you are. They didn't want to change you and then accept you. Right. Uh, right. And in, in so far as they did want to change me, it was they wanted to push me to be a better person um, and to to do more. You know, I have I have this this friend. She's originally from Dallas and, and now lives in Atlanta and her and another one of my friends who uh, used to live in Chicago and now lives in Florida, the two of them, I would go up to them and I would say, you know, when I was uh, at Cornell, I have such a vivid memory of this. They're, they're older than me. Um, and they're both amazing women who have been, who have served in the community for many, many, many years. And I've spent a lot of time with them and they would go to, they would come to me and they would say, um, oh, you know, you have to succeed, Moise. It's really important for you to do so. And I said, okay, I feel enough pressure already. And I'd go to them. I remember one time I went to them and I said, hey, I'm, you know, I just got like um, my grades at Cornell and I'm number three in my class. Isn't that amazing? And they said to me, well, <laughs> no, that's great. But like, why aren't you number one in your class? Um, and you know, it, it's, it's funny now at the time I was so angry with them, but I remember thinking after that semester, I was like, okay, I have to be number one in my class. Like, because otherwise what are Ashu and Zara going to say? And, you know, ultimately I, I was, you know, fortunately able to graduate at the top of my class, but it was those sorts of things. It, it was them. It was, you know, my best friend, uh, this, uh, woman in Chicago, Umbrain or, uh, you know, my dearest, dearest friend, Nusrat, who I've known since I was a wee bit lad, who were constantly those, you know, that those four women and, and others around me who were constantly trying to get me to be, to know that I was loved unconditionally by them, right? Which is a thing I think a lot of people, a lot of kids particularly struggle with knowing whether you're loved or not loved, or, you know, if I tell you this about myself, are you going to stop loving me? They made sure that I was loved. And then they made sure that now that I knew I was loved, I better go out and do amazing things and not squander that. Um, Potential. So, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So, you know, one of the interesting axioms there are, and perhaps you can attest this to me, is they say that once you're successful, right, you the people who particularly didn't like you will tell others how they met you, 
And have you found that to be true? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, look, I, I'm not, I'm not as successful as, um, as perhaps you're um, graciously attributing to me. Um, <laughs> but I, I certainly think it is true that um, that people have come out of the woodwork um, and I have heard from others about, oh, such and such was saying so many things about you and how long they've known you and how long they've, you know, uh, right. uh, supported you or whatever. And I was like, wow, well, that's news to me um, <laughs> because last I remember that person was not being very nice to me. Um, uh, but, you know, I think, uh, so I think there's probably there's probably is some truth to that, um, and I think it's you know it's part of the human condition. Um, we're all flawed beings, and we're just trying to be better. And absolutely happy happy to happy to have uh, uh, ha- happy to have that love at you know even if it's later rather than sooner. Sure, agreed. I want to get back to your work. So you've done cases for Amazon, T-Mobile. Can you share some interesting stories from your cases? Does does one particular one stand out to you? Sure. Um, so Amazon's been a client for for a couple of years now, and I do a lot of work with them. One of one of the cases that we've uh, handled uh, for Amazon is sort of unique to California, and it's kind of the confluence of like what a nerdy lawyer likes to think about, which is constitutional principles like the First Amendment. <laughs> and and kind of what a Hollywood lawyer likes to think about, which is how does this impact the entertainment industry? And I'm not, I don't style myself an entertainment lawyer or an IP lawyer or a white collar lawyer. I, I just generally, t- my firm takes on cases that are important to our clients and we kind of bring all of our creativity and might and force to those cases. So a recent case we had for Amazon was around the following. The state of California passed a bill called AB 1687. And AB 1687 was a bill that was backed by um, the Screen Actors Guild, which is you know a, a very well-respected actors union. Um, and the bill said that you cannot publish a person's age on the internet. Um, and that's I'm I'm grossly oversimplifying the bill, but that at its core was you couldn't publish the age of entertainment industry professionals on the internet. So Amazon owns this website called IMDb, and I myself am a pretty big believer that speech should be um, the best way to counter speech that you don't like is through additional speech, right? So. Our, our first, our default assumption should not be to limit free speech. In many instances, you do have to limit free speech um, and you do have to control speech because it can be, you know, inciting violence against people because it can be terroristic and, and defamatory. So there are limits on speech, but as a general matter, you should not be limiting truthful speech, even if you don't like the speech. Um, and so IMDb is the world's largest internet movie database, and it contains information on millions and millions of films and actors and other directors and producers and casting agents and, and whatnot. And the state of California, the attorney general of California, 
um, was going to enforce this bill because IMDb, among other things, publishes the birth dates of people in the entertainment industry. And so we filed a lawsuit seeking to invalidate this California law um, on the basis of uh, our client's First Amendment rights, which is if the if the age is wrong, if the birth date is wrong, that's certainly something we need to be told so that it can be corrected. But you can't just prohibit us under threat of penalty from publishing truthful information. So it was a very interesting case. It was a First Amendment case. We won on everything um, uh, in federal court. Um, and uh, it's now up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and we feel pretty good about our chances there. Uh, as well, but it was it was sort of it was an interesting case for Amazon because it brought together these kind of different different kind of worlds intersections uh, about constitutional principles and and the entertainment industry. The case that you mentioned for T-Mobile was a trade secret lawsuit that we filed against this Chinese company called Huawei where we believed that Huawei had stolen some of T-Mobile's proprietary confidential technology under the guise of a partnership when what instead of being T-Mobile's partner, what Huawei was doing was um, uh, exfiltrating some confidential proprietary information. So that lawsuit, we were in Seattle in federal court for three weeks. Um, and at the end of that, we, the jury unanimously found in our client's favor. So that was really rewarding. Um, it was rewarding more so uh, because, you know, T-Mobile was this sort of US kind of Seattle darling company. And these people who had developed this technology that was stolen were were people from Seattle. They were, you know, engineers and, and uh um, and employees that worked at this great American company. Um, uh, and after we won our lawsuit, uh, about six months later, the U.S. government filed its own lawsuit against Huawei, um, alleging that the conduct that they had committed against our client, what we had proven at our trial, was in fact criminal. So that lawsuit is still pending. Um, so that was, you know, another example of taking what what is traditionally a dispute between two businesses, yet now it having these larger implications and consequences in terms of U.S. law enforcement. Interesting. So they say reality is stranger than fiction. Has there been a case where you found that to be true? Oh my God! Yeah, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I had a case. Um, I'm trying to remember. If, I think it was 2012 or 2013. I represented a billionaire um, named Bill Koch. And okay. Bill Koch is one of the four notorious Koch brothers. Uh, two of his brothers are more infamous in some ways than him, uh, Charles and David Koch, right. uh, who run Koch Industries. Bill is, no, is not a part of Koch Industries. Bill was the youngest of the four brothers. Um, and he had his own company called Oxbow Carbon. Bill was also a collector of fine and rare wine. And when I talk fine and rare wine, I'm not talking about, you know, a $100 bottle of, of wine. I'm talking about a $100,000 bottle of wine. Wines that belonged purportedly to Thomas Jefferson. 
right? Wow. Wines from the 1800s, from 1921, 1945, 1954. These amazing vintages of old Bordeaux and Burgundy wines. And Bill was had a collection of 50, 60,000 bottles of wine, just an enormous amount of wine. And Bill had discovered, or he had suspected and then discovered, that he had some of the wine that he had bought was actually not authentic. Hmm. That it's said, for example, that the bottles belonged to Thomas Jefferson, but as a result of investigation, it was obvious that these bottles did not belong to Thomas Jefferson. It was said that a bottle of 1921 Chateau Petrus was, in fact, a 1921 Chateau Petrus, for which Bill spent $40,000 for that bottle. But as Amazing. it turns out, we suspected it wasn't wine from 1921 in a bottle from 1921. Hmm. And Bill hired us. Uh, by the way, I don't drink wine, so it was all the... The, the law and the investigation part was interesting to me. The wine I couldn't care about, <laughs> uh, uh, or I couldn't care less about. Um, but um, it, so Bill hired us, right, to basically go after everyone who was selling this fake wine. And th the wine was being sold, by the way, by high-end auction houses, Christie's. There's a unique auction house called, uh, a wine-oriented auction house called Acker Merrill. It was being sold by billionaires around the country. It was being sold by people who fancied themselves and presented themselves as extraordinary wine enthusiasts and tasters. And Bill said to us, go after everyone who sold me fake wine. And I remember I would sometimes talk to him and I'd say, Bill, you know, you're going to spend a lot more on litigating this than the wine is even worth, right? right. And he said, I don't care. I'm going to, he said, I've got a lot of money and he does. And right. I'm going to expose this fraud. Um, mm. And so we took these cases and, and we had a bunch of them and I was in a trial. Um, uh, this was a trial that we had in federal court in New York, another three week trial. And I had my witness up there because the other side was saying, no, 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 this wine is real. This wine is real. The bottle isn't even open. So how can you possibly tell us the wine is fake? And I had an expert witness up there, this guy who, um, who actually teaches the FBI about dating things. And I gave him the bottle and I had a, a, the jury was sitting there listening to this expert witness. And I said, now, I want you to walk me through all of the kind of what are the most signature features of a bottle of wine? So you would say, OK, well, the cork, the bottle, the label, the ink on the label, right, naming the, the type of wine it is. And I said, okay, now let's go through each of them. So this bottle is from 1921. That's what the defendant wants to have you believe. So is this a bottle from 1921? Absolutely not. Okay, well, how do you know that? So then he would start and we'd walk through, well, the paper that this label is printed on actually didn't exist in 1921. And how do you know that? Well, let's hold up a black light to it. See, the black light shows that the paper illuminates. And that's a whitening agent that wasn't added to paper until the 1960s. Then you'd say, okay, now I want you to take this microscope and look at the ink that's on this label. And you can see that the ink has this kind of four-dot pattern. 
well, that's a printer cartridge that didn't exist until the 1960s. So it couldn't be from 1921. And the label is affixed with this glue that didn't exist until the 1980s, right? And the cork has a stamp on it that this particular wine house didn't start using until the 1940s. So there's no way if you take all of this indicia of inauthenticity that whatever's in this bottle is from 1921. And then we ha- and then we had this like radioactive testing through the bottle that showed that the grape drew that whatever was in the bottle was from grapes, but there was there were levels of um, chemicals in them that didn't exist in grapes until after nuclear testing had begun. Um, in the Second World War. So you have this jury completely enthralled at this point, right? And you're like handing the bottle to the jury and you're giving them a jeweler's roof and you're giving them a black light so they could see for themselves. And you can just in that moment see, you know, the light go off in their head saying, okay, I believe these guys. Like the defendant was selling them fake wine. And the reason I So there's sort of a CSI element to it, which was actually very cool. But after that trial, there was another trial that we had going. And that guy ended up getting arrested and is now serving many, many, many years behind bars for selling fake wine, which when we bought the case, I will tell you, no one believed us. Everyone said, you guys are crazy. You're just trying to ruin the wine industry. This is all good wine. I I remember talking to some very, very famous billionaires in this country, trying to get them to admit that they too had bought fake wine, and they refused to admit it because they didn't want their investments to go down in value. And then as soon as this guy, we won our trial and worked with the government and the government arrested the second person, then everybody came out of the woodwork saying, oh my God, I was defrauded, I was defrauded. This has resulted in a movie, a book, a Netflix documentary, all sort of flowing out of our our case, our cases. One of the books was called Billionaire's Vinegar, which was about the Thomas Jefferson wine. There's a movie about this guy, Rudy Kurniawan, a, a, a documentary about him. So it, it's been really, it's it was very interesting, very unusual, very rewarding. Um, uh, but the, the, I guess, reality that turned into some nonfiction um, portrayed through various media. Yeah, very interesting. I want to talk about the pro bono work you mentioned. My pro bono work has typically um, um, was probably best reflected in um, the suit that we participated in uh, for um, care uh, in San Diego, they had witnessed an uptick in the bullying of Muslim students. And so the San Diego School District passed an initiative that um, was specifically intended to target uh, anti-Muslim bullying. Um, and it had an educational component so people could learn about Ramzan, for example, or Eid. Um, and it had other components as well. It was mostly to inform and educate so that once students are educated about things that they may not be as familiar with, maybe they will not um, bully these Muslim kids as, you know, strangers. Um, And so we filed that. Somebody sued the San Diego School District 
seeking to invalidate that initiative, claiming it violated all sorts of constitutional principles, First Amendment principles, equal protection principles, etc. It was a true perversion of the constitutional protections. Constitutional equal protection is meant to ensure that people who are being targeted are treated equally. It is not meant to ensure that the people who are doing the targeting are allowed to continue doing so unimpeded um, uh, and unchecked. But that was this lawsuit that was filed. So we represented CARE in um, in participating in that lawsuit um, to defend these policies and to argue that schools are absolutely entitled as a part of their education curriculum, as a part of their objective under law to protect students and ensure they are, are all getting an equal opportunity to get an education, that, that this anti-Muslim bullying initiative um, or this anti-bullying of Muslim students initiative was constitutional. And the court agreed with us and said that that initiative was absolutely proper. And that case is now over. So that was really rewarding. Um, and then the, the more recent case, which sort of is in this third category, has been around immigrant protection. And this more recent case actually has a similar kind of, um, you know, reality is stranger than fiction element to it. My client is this organization called Freedom for Immigrants. And what Freedom for Immigrants does is it provides a nationwide toll-free hotline that immigrants being that are held in detention, in civil detention centers, can call. And they can report abuse that they're suffering. They can report malnourishment, maltreatment. They can try to get connected with pro bono legal service providers. They can try to find out where their family members are from whom they may have been separated at the border or at a point of entry. So Freedom for Immigrants is doing extraordinary important work. Immigrants that are being held in detention, they are not allowed to make phone calls for free. Every minute that they want to speak to someone costs a dollar. And a lot of them don't have any money because they were swept up and put into detention with no assets or belongings. So the importance of having a toll-free number is vital for them to be able to have a lifeline to the outside world. And the toll-free number is regulated by ICE. So if ICE decides you don't have a number, you're not going to have a number. And so in our case, our client, every time our client, Freedom for Immigrants, would protest, would write a letter about maltreatment, would write an op-ed, would get published in the Huffington Post, every time that happened, ICE would take retaliatory action against our client. And this wow. all culminated after the show, Orange is the New Black, which is on Netflix, <laughs> right. show, uh, their last season where half of the season was spent in an immigration detention center. And our client worked with the producers and writers of Orange is the New Black to kind of depict life in immigration detention centers. And one of the scenes actually is someone giving our client's toll-free number out in this detention center. And that that character said to the other character, make sure that Big Brother doesn't find out because they'll shut it down. And after two weeks after the show premiered, I shut our hotline down entirely. Exactly. So we filed a lawsuit pro bono for Freedom for Immigrants in federal court in California, arguing that that action, that retaliation violates our client's First Amendment rights. We had a lengthy hearing uh, where it was 
uh, or, you know, me and two of my associates and three DOJ lawyers on the other side. And the court issued an order um, uh, agreeing with us entirely and compelling ICE to reinstate our clients toll-free hotline so that the people who are being held in immigrant detention may continue uh, getting access uh, to this really important critical tool where they can report about the conditions of their abuse. And so that the public, the, the American people in whose name these immigrants are being detained can actually know what life is like in, in, that, in those facilities. Fascinating. I want to shift our gears to more about the the South Asian and Muslim community. So what kind of responsibility now do you feel compared to many years ago of defining yourself as part of an identity? And do you feel like you can give lessons to that? All I can do is try to live um, live in a way that is worthy of that sort of admiration or um, respect. Um, and I think, you know, it's something I actually tried to do since since I was younger. It's really important to me. Um, and part of the service I did um, when I was on the Aga Khan Youth and Sports Board right. was to develop this um, this uh, service or, organization called ISERB, um, which now is all over the country, um, which is something that we started when I was actually um, uh, was back in law school. Um, and, and just to mention, Mo, is that yeah. organization now has led to some amazing, amazing, amazing work, even just recently in Houston during the uh, Hurricane Harvey. They, they did so much work during the for the relief that you had. They got the uh, they got an award from the five living presidents. That's amazing. And that, that brings me so much more joy and pride than anything I've done uh, professionally. Um, because that organization was one, it, it sort of goes back to the idea that, that I was sharing with you earlier. It's, it was even from when I was like 18, 19, 20, and I was thinking, you know, people, immigrants, particularly in this community, people who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, are so often seen as just the beneficiaries of service. And I, I think it's so important for our community, Ismaili Muslims generally, to be seen as the givers of service, as the benefactors of service. And it may, it's not always, or it's not even often going to be around, you know, I'm gonna write a check uh, to, to give um, financial support, but it can be around volunteering, around being you know, the organization, this was sort of the dream when I was first starting this with a group of people, um, uh, including my best friend who I was telling you about, Umbreen, including people like Ashu and Zara and Nusrat, you know, all these people that I had started around. There were a number of other people. There was this young man uh, at the time, he was a college student at MIT named Nijad Jamal. Um, but we were sort of all working together and we were establishing um, this organization, I should also name Zara Qasim. Uh, there are a bunch of Zara Qasims, but uh, this one was, this one is not Zara Qasim ZBK. This was a different Zara Qasim uh, who I, I try to remember what she had. She may have been at Emory or, or, uh, or something like that. All of these people who we'd sort of come together. I was the leader of the, or, the effort 
And we wanted, we had a dream that in, in the communities in which Ismaili Muslims live, that when there were significant events, when there was a need for community service, when there was a need for people to band together and to help others, that we, that our organization, ISERV, um, uh, would be the organization that people would be one of the organizations that people would turn to and say, wow, you Ismaili Muslims, you guys really are defining and living the truth of what it means to be a Muslim, which is very much outward looking, which is very much lifting society up along with you. And so that, just you mentioning, you know, the experience in Houston, and we've heard about things similarly in, in different communities around the country. I remember going to a presentation where they were trying to get um, a permit for a new Jamaatkana. And part of the presentation they were doing about who are Ismaili Muslims, I, you know, I would say half of it was I serve events. Um, and that to me is such a rewarding, fulfilling thing and sort of tying it back to this notion of being a role model. It really allows every Ismaili young person and old person and member of the community to be a role model because it allows them an opportunity to project to others what Islam is and what Ismailism is um, and the selflessness of that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, I'm so happy to, to hear about I'm so happy to hear about that. And I, of course, you know, watched uh, over the years as I serve uh, after I uh, was no longer leading it. You know, there's so many people who have come since then to have made it so much bigger, so much stronger so much more a fabric of our community around the country. Oh, that's good to hear. What's your next step? What What do you want to accomplish in the next year? You know, over the next year, I sort of near term, a year now still seems like very near term. Uh, I've got, I'm just extraordinarily busy and blessed to be busy uh, at work. And we have a lot of interesting, interesting cases coming up. Um, uh, I've got a lot of young lawyers who have joined our firm that are relying on us to give them good, meaningful experiences. Um, so it's it's the next year is probably going to be a lot like the past year, which is working very, very hard, trying to do, um, you know, and and trying to do some good in the world while doing it. And then become the president, right? Yeah, then become the president. <laughs> There's there are a couple of steps to go probably probably before that, but yeah, I. I, but I, on that note, I, I do, I am eager, uh, very eager for the elections and seeing how we can, we can help, uh, right the ship, so to speak. Moez, this has been so much fun. No, it's, I'm so honored and grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with you. And I'm so proud of, of what you are doing. Um, and thank you. The inquisitive nature of your of your questions not just to me but to the other people that you've spoken to i think you i think you're a role model and i think um people will be well served to to heed the lessons from you and from your conversations with others thank you that means a lot you're very welcome thank you for listening to today's episode with candid insights if you enjoyed it don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media for updates on future episodes if you've already subscribed please leave us a rating or review. It does help new people find the podcast. I'm Sahil Badruddin, your host. And for a transcript of this interview and others, visit my website at sahilbadruddin.com.